The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org.
Hi, Steve. Um, I just got a call from Steve and he is having internet problems. So I'm going to kick off the meeting um, as vice chair. Uh, and I will say thanks everyone for uh, joining uh, on this delayed meeting that we had to reschedule because of weather. Um, and I'm going to ask Sean to call the roll. Um, should we start with the land use statement, Rita? Okay, but I'm just following the agenda. It says call to order. Oh, call to order. Yes, thank you. Land statement. Go ahead. Uh, I acknowledge that the land the city of Ann Arbor occupies is the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe, including Odawa, Ojibwe, and Badewanmi, and Wyandotte peoples. I further acknowledge that our city stands, like almost all property in the United States, on lands obtained generally in unconscionable ways from indigenous peoples. The taking of this land was formalized by the Treaty of Detroit in 1807. Knowing where we live, work, study, and recreate does not change the past, but a thorough understanding of the ongoing consequences of this past can empower us in our work to create a future that supports human flourishing and justice for all individuals. Thank you, Sean. And I guess I should say, um, this is being videotaped and um, I don't see our phone number that we would ordinarily um, use to announce to the public if anyone wanted to call in. Do you have that, Sean? Uh, you let me that? pull that up really quickly. I do have it on the agenda here. 
And I'll just say that um, I'll paraphrase <laughs> our statement that we are holding this meeting remotely because of COVID. We've been um, authorized to have remote meetings in this public way. And we um, encourage and welcome people to call in if they need to, if they would like to make a statement um, and to the Environmental Commission. Thanks. Okay, and the numbers. Uh, hey, yes, Rita. I have the, sorry. Rita, I'm back. Oh, good, I see you. I think, yeah, I think I just got my internet back. So um, I can take over from here and I can read the Sounds statement. Good. Thank you. Full statement, if you like. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, welcome to the uh, March 10th, 2023 electronic meeting of the Environmental Commission. This meeting is in accordance with executive orders from the governor to affect social distancing and mitigate the spread of the COVID-19 virus. We intend to conduct this meeting similarly, similarly to an in-person meeting. However, please be patient if there are technical issues. Public comment will be via telephone only. To speak during any of the public comment opportunities, please call 877-853-5247 or 312-626-6799 and enter meeting ID 963-9100-2023. This information is also available on the published agenda in the public notices section of the city website and on the broadcast of this meeting on CTN channel 16, AT&T channel 99, and online at www.a2gov.org slash watch CTN. All right, thank you, sorry. So, uh, so have you done the roll call yet, Rita? Not yet. Okay, is that the land heritage statement? Oh uh, yes, we did do the land heritage statement. Okay, thank you. So um, um, let's do the roll call, Sean. Sounds good. All right, uh, Council Member Ackman. Uh, Chairperson Brown. Present in Ann Arbor. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Callowart. Here. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Curtis. Here. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Dale. Present. Thank you. Council Member Dish. Present in Chicago. Thank you. Commissioner Gabe Randall. Here in Ann Arbor. Thank you. Commissioner Graham. Here in Ann Arbor. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Gruber. Here in Ann Arbor. Thank you. Commissioner Marson. Uh, Commissioner Mursky. You're participating from my home here in Ann Arbor. Thank you. Uh, Vice Chairperson Mitchell. You're in Ann Arbor. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Nedrich. Present in Ann Arbor. Thank you. Commissioner Oriel. Here in Ann Arbor. Thank you. And Commissioner Wayne. All right. Uh, and that is a quorum. Thank you, Sean. The next item on the agenda is the approval of this agenda. Um, do I have a motion to approve it? Consider it. Uh, John Mursky, seconded by Anya Dale. Um, let's open the discussion. Um, are there any proposed amendments to the ag agenda or corrections? Hearing and see none, I, uh, um, let's bring it to a vote. Um, all who approve of the agenda as submitted, please raise your hands and say uh, yay. 
Aye. And all, and all those who, uh, any no's, any abstentions? I hear and see none, so it's accepted as submitted uh, unanimously. Uh, the next item on the agenda is the approval of our minutes from the last meeting, January 26th. Um, let's see, do I have a motion to review those minutes? Uh, anybody? Uh, John Worski, Anya Dale again. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, for discussion, are there any uh, proposed uh, changes to the minutes as drafted? Hey, I hear and see none. Um, so this closes the discussion. So all who approve of the minutes as, as drafted, please uh, raise your hand or say aye. Aye. Uh, all, any no's? Any abstentions? Uh, hearing and seeing none. Uh, I'm sorry, I heard a voice. I'm just abstaining because I wasn't there. Oh, okay. Thank you, Bridget. So Bridget's abstaining. Um, so the motion passes uh, by a majority. Um, so let's see. Uh, this. So this. Uh, the next item on the agenda is the first uh, period for public commentary. Um, this is an opportunity for persons to speak for up to three minutes. Please call 1-888-788-0099 and enter meeting ID 963-9100-2023. This information is also displayed on the meeting agenda and video feed. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand one by one using the last three digits of your phone number. In order to electronically raise your hand to indicate your desire to speak, please press star nine on your phone. You will hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any television or background sounds so that we may hear you clearly. Please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments and be patient. There can be a delay of up to 30 seconds before a connection is established. So do we have anybody on the line as yet, Sean? Uh, we do not. Okay. So we'll wait 30 seconds. Uh, is there anybody on the line yet, Sean? There is not. Okay. Uh, well, this ends the uh, first period of public commentary. There will be a second opportunity at the end of the meeting. Um, the next item on the agenda is unfinished business, and there is none uh, listed. So let's proceed to new business. And the first item is a presentation of the equitable engagement report. Yes, uh, I believe we have Michelle Bennett here today instead of Heather Singer. Instead of, uh, okay. Now, welcome to the commission, Michelle. Thank you. Good morning, commissioners. Thank you so much for letting me join your meeting. Um, I am going to share my screen to start. How is that working? What, what okay. do you all see? Uh, I see your screen. Okay, fantastic. 
Okay, my name is Michelle Bennett. I am a community engagement specialist with the city of Ann Arbor that's in the systems planning unit. In full transparency, my colleague Heather Safarth started this initiative and led it uh, for the 18 months. I joined uh, over the summer, so I've spent the last six months working on this project with her and with the steering committee. So um, I'm here to present about the process, um, the, the project aims, and uh, some of the findings from this initiative. So broadly speaking, the aim of this project was for the city to work with a steering committee to figure out what equity means and how to translate that into policies, guidelines, and practices that as staff we can implement to achieve our goals of being more inclusive in our engagement efforts. Um, before we launched this project, the staff did quite a bit of pre-work. Uh, so starting in fiscal year 2019, we started collecting demographic data through all of our surveys and public meetings to get a sense of who is attending. Um, and so you can see here through uh, race and ethnic identifiers, household income, age, and housing tenure, where some of the disparities are um, and where there is some more work for us to do in um, bringing new faces to, to our engagement. Um, so you can see in these graphs that we are comparing our survey respondents primarily to um, census data. Um, this is the 2021 five-year estimates. So we can see, for example, that um, in Ann Arbor, for example, we have quite a bit more um, renters than show up to our meetings. Um, you can see the age breakdown here as well, that we have primarily empty nesters or retirees. Um, you can see the same here with our income, that it skews towards higher incomes and towards um, primarily white homeowners. I see a hand up. Do we want to go ahead and yeah, just take that quickly, now? Quickly, um, the question is, I've heard you say this is based on meeting participants, and I see it survey respondents. What's the population for this, for these results? Yes. So in our entire database, we collect both. Um, these charts here are showing you the survey data. Um, secondly, we went through uh, staff education before starting this process. So we researched some promising practices from other communities. So that's a term uh, that we use now instead of best practices, it's promising practices. We looked at our own practices to see where there may be gaps and then looked at some research um, in Ann Arbor and in Washtenaw County to see what efforts are being made towards equitable engagement. Um, so some of our current practices are our community engagement toolkit. So that was designed to help staff members who are leading engagement efforts to sit down with a community engagement specialist like myself. It's a five-step process where we look through stakeholders. Uh, we have a stakeholder list, so we determine who should be at the meetings. We discuss what are the best techniques um, given our desired outcomes for this uh, process. And so that is done 
before many of the public services uh, engagement sessions. The demographic data collection I just shared with you. We also worked with um, IEP2, that stands for the International Association of Public Participation. They're a global nonprofit that's dedicated to this topic. And we have them come in and train about 50 staff members on, on um, promising practices for engagement. We've also worked with the youth um, before the pandemic hit. We are hoping to move back in that direction. Uh, in 2019, Heather had worked with a class at Community High, and that taught them about the civic process and really got them thinking about some of these topics that might not otherwise be explored in a high school curriculum. And then there's also an ordinance on file. Um, this is mainly used by the planning department where developers have to have certain requirements. I believe there's certain thresholds where if the development project is big enough that they have to go to the public um, and talk with them first. And then before the uh, pandemic hit, or right as the pandemic hit, um, the city set up an engagement hub as everything was transitioning to online. They threw up a page with some links that direct people to engagement opportunities. Uh, we had some School of Information students review it over the summer. You can see that it's not um, getting many hits. It also wasn't advertised very much, um, but we are actually in the process of updating this, which I will get to a little bit later on in this presentation. So while we were doing that research, we were also putting out a call for steering committee members. Um, here's the flyer that went out that you can see some of the criteria we're looking for. So now that we have that demographic data and we see who the typical attendees are, we were really trying to find a steering committee that was more representative uh, of the city. And so we put out a call, we received 80 applicants um, and selected 30 to meet monthly, again, for 18 months. Uh, and the main takeaways here are that we wanted a group to define equity what our core values are and uh, the recommendations that I'm gonna share with you. So the committee did come up with an equity definition here, um, which is contrasted with equality so that we can see the difference in this graphic. Um, if you were to give everyone the same bike, um, only some can succeed. If you were to tailor the bike to people's kind of individual needs, then they can all succeed is the idea. So we um, use this really as the definition moving forward. So you may be wondering, what did we do for those 18 months? Um, Heather organized a lot of speakers to come in and held a facilitator, a lot of discussions. Here's some of the major topics. Um, the Opportunity Index is a map that's created by Washtenaw County, if any of you are familiar with that. Um, the demographic data that we talked about, the engagement toolkit I touched on. The idea was for them to share what the city is doing and get their feedback on, is this reaching our goal of equity? Like, is this good enough? And so we, um, we shared that information with them. And then we sort of veered off into other topics that ended up being very important to them. Um, City hiring practices was a big one. Um, and I'm actually gonna show you in this next slide uh, 
a five-toed um, animal that we know doesn't exist in nature, but this is meant to reflect the kind of larger topics that were mainly of interest. But if you can see in the paw there where it says equitable engagement, we tried to filter all of it through this lens of how can community engagement establish an equitable footing on all of these topics. Um, so while we may have veered off into talking about hiring practices or housing, we came back to, well, how are we getting, how are our processes at the city reflecting a more, are, are more equitable so that we can reflect um, feedback outside of our, our typical attendees. So I'm gonna jump into the recommendations and this is where we're really looking for, for any feedback from you all. Um, the first recommendation that you can see here is uh, really sort of based in accountability and touches on the um, hiring practices. So, one of the main comments was, you know, we would feel more comfortable uh, participating if there was some reflection of us in city staff. So we go to these meetings and they're all led um, by people that don't look like us. And so there were some comments here about that's a good place to start. So we did have HR attend several of these meetings um, so that we can talk about things because there are obviously some legal constraints as well. Um, but it was more about um, feeling reflected so that you feel more comfortable at meetings. Um, and that fifth one there, Be Authentic, was really getting at um, maybe kind of getting away from politicians speak. Just tell us, just tell us how it is. Like, what is the process? Who is the final decision maker? What do you need to know from us? And share and share the information in a very plain, easy to understand language so that it's not confusing or muddled with jargon. So this was the first, the first recommendation is demonstrate the city is committed to advancing equity. So they want to see changes uh, as opposed to, to lip service. The second one really touches on outreach. Um, there was Sort of surprisingly, I think to us, a uh, conversation about using non-digital ways of getting the word out. So we've kind of transferred completely that way since COVID. Um, but they really pushed for a more on the ground, you know, going to local businesses and putting up flyers. That way you can meet people face to face. You can kind of build connections that way. Um, translating materials for our non-native English speakers and then creating an online hub, which again, we'll talk about later, but really we need a place to centralize all of these opportunities because at the moment they are spread across different project pages on the city website that are difficult to find. Um, the third recommendation here is sort of about budgeting and training, more or less um, provide the resources necessary for staff to conduct meaningful engagement. So make sure that you budget every year if this is a priority for you to have the appropriate amount of staff and that they are trained. Um, and that once your staff is trained, that way they can continue to update the resources and tools that you use and actually measure, um, set up goals and measure success. So this is their recommendation to sort of back up claims about, you know, caring deeply about engagement. 
And then lastly, they want to make engagement events more accessible and attractive. So this is thinking of ways to increase participation. Um, hybrid meetings is a big one. So we're able to do them in this setting. Often at commission meetings, we can have people call in. But if you want to do exercises in engagement or have neighbors meet and talk face to face, that's been one challenge for, uh, for us at certain locations to be able to fill facilitate that um, as a hybrid meeting. They also wanted to be set up in ways, and we all know about this, um, to sort of mitigate grandstanding. There are certain people that feel comfortable being vocal in front of a large group of people, and it can drown out other voices. Um, and again, like we've mentioned earlier, is they want to, to be clearly communicated to them what the decision is that needs to be made, What's the process? Who's the final decision maker? And are the results going to be shared with them? What level of influence do they have over this decision? So that's the being authentic at the beginning of the meeting or at the engagement series. So some of the promising practices that we're already looking into, um, I highlighted here the engagement hub because we have already um, put in a budget request for that. And I'll show you on the next slide what that entails. Um, but community liaisons is another one we're looking into where groups, um, for example, that might not feel comfortable participating or feel um, mistrustful or neglected by local government, um, one workaround through that and would also be a great way to have this steering committee continue to collaborate with us is that the city would compensate people to work with their neighbors or their community we would train and teach them how to facilitate. We would come up with the certain questions we want to ask, and they would go into their communities for us and relay the information back. So there are some communities that are already doing that and something that the steering committee um, liked. So we are looking into that as well. So here is a screenshot of what an engagement hub looks like. This is, I think, our favorite so far for the city of Pittsburgh. You can see these project cards just centralize all of the projects that are available. At the top, people can categorize them based on their interests or location, and they can subscribe to those um, so that they can customize this page to the types of meetings they want to attend. Um, and then if you click on one of these projects, you get more information, like, for example, if there's a survey, if there's a recording for the meeting, the contact information, the process, the decision makers, all the relevant information that you would need to know as, uh, as a potential attendee to that meeting. So we are also looking into this and hoping um, soon enough we'll hear if we get funding and then pursue this as one of our first action items. Um, that is it for me. Thank you again for your time. These two um, links right here are, the top one is for the project website, which has more details, uh, as I just gave you a, an overview. And the draft report is there as well, so you can read that in full and send us any insights, comments, questions that you have. And you would be sending them to this email here, a2equitableengagement at a2gov.org. Um, I have access to that, as does Heather, so we can answer any other questions or thoughts you have. 
um, based on this presentation or reading through the report. I can also take some questions right now if you have any. Yep, yep, yep. Um, okay, Bridget, you're up first and then Anya. Thank you for sharing that, Michelle. I have a question about um, our role in this. You say that your recommendation, which I think is a really good one, one of the recommendations is to appoint racially and ethnically minoritized candidates representing impacted community perspectives to boards and commissions. And we are one of those commissions. So I wonder if, Michelle, if you have um, further recommendations on how we can do that. And then I guess I throw the question to uh, to the commission. Do we have plans to start thinking about how we can do that? Um, I guess I'll respond to that, Bridget, after Michelle's had her say. Okay, thanks. Um, so again, there are some legal constraints here, right? But the idea is that we broaden our outreach so that we Typically, when we go through our um, already established channels, right, depending on who established them, they kind of um, perpetuate the same types of people attending. So really, this is sort of a recommendation to maybe think through how are you advertising position openings? Do we need to diversify how we do that so that we're reaching other people? Um kind of this community liaison approach or working with youth or it, it's very labor intensive, which is why I think it hasn't always been prioritized, but it's going to take a while to build those partnerships so that people um, want to join these groups. Um, but in the meantime, I think the main change here is how those are being advertised, like through which markets, which channels. Um, and then I believe our our positions, people apply and then they're selected by the mayor and then voted on by the commission. Is that how it works? Yeah. That... Yes. OK. That's... Well, Lisa, you you have your hand up. You were going to comment, Lisa, I think. Yeah, I was going to say that it's not that's not always the way it works. I mean, okay. that's not the process for EC, right? They're not. Uh... We, the commission makes a recommendation to the council liaisons, the council liaisons bring that to the mayor. I don't know that that the mayor has discretion in this one and some of them he does, but just, you know, just so you know, we, con we contact people that we know personally. Yeah. So the real action of getting people on commissions, uh, I helped recruit someone for ICPOC a few years ago. It's interpersonal so you can change how you advertise things but that is not <laughs> that's not the pathway <laughs> the major one yeah yeah here's where i can uh, i can jump in as the chair i've been the chair of the commission for the last three years and um, um i've made an effort i've tried to make an effort to recruit more uh representative members to the commission but um first of all most residents are not aware that there is an environmental commission and secondly, um, um, I have in, I have asked a number of people to apply who have a strong background in the environment and who are, uh, you know, members of the BIPOC community, um, but they have declined to apply because they're just too busy uh, with other activities. So I agree, we just need to broaden our, we need to broaden uh, public awareness of the commission. 
and we need to broaden, uh, you know, just so people are aware that it exists and what it does. And then we also do need to reach out to, uh, you know, to, um, um, I'm not sure, uh, to the more neglected parts of our community. So I, I've been trying to make an effort with that, but I understand, I think I understand fully the barriers here after uh, the three years of experience here, especially. Um, so I, I can just mention, um, I'll mention some things later, but I want to field other people's questions first. So Anya, you had your hand up next and then Lisa. I, um, just a comment first on that thought and then go to the question I had. I, I think I think it is true that a lot of folks rely heavily on the, their own existing network to recruit people. And I think that can be very effective, but I think that that sometimes perpetuates the problem, right? So I think that that's where we have to be a little bit more intentional um, about going out to specific neighborhoods and communities. And and um, it, I think I think it does have to be a, a little bit more sort of far reaching than than the people who are already in like the networks that we that we are working in. Um, the reason I put my hand up though was a question about the specifically the the Pittsburgh engagement hub, but um, is there a way, I like that the, the there's an ability to subscribe to the topic that you're interested in. Um, is one of the functions also that you would get notified about anything new within that category? Because I think that there's a there's always the issue of people maybe be very well intending to go regularly check a website, but often don't, right? So if there's a way that they actually get notified when there's new things put into that category on the hub, I think that that might get people, more people to come back and regularly um, yeah. come and participate. I'm fairly, I'm almost certain that is a, a possibility because we can already do that with our current system. It's not by general topic or geography, but if you go to the project page, you can click to subscribe and get notifications for that specific project. Um, so, you know, we're not in contract with anyone yet, so I don't know all the widgets that are available, but I think that's very doable. Um, yeah, and a good point. Mm -hmm. Let's see, uh, uh, Brooks, you have your hand up. Uh, yeah, it's just, um, I think it's a great initiative. I'm just wondering uh, what does success look like to you with this initiative and how do you measure progress? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so our goal is to increase par participation and to diversify our participants. So it is very challenging to measure, um, as we've been talking about on the team, that sometimes low attendance could be a metric of success. If the, if the participants or if the neighbors trust you, they might not feel a need to come to the meeting. We would usually mark that as like a failure of notifying people where it could mean the opposite. Um, there's also trouble with the demographics that we collect because those are optional. Um, so we do not capture everyone. So we are actually in the middle of thinking about what metrics work for us. Um, but it is going to be probably looking at the number of people that attend kind of versus the number of people that were invited. Um, the demographics, how many newcomers, we want to start a, maybe counting how many newcomers are attending our meetings so we can maybe see who we're drawing in. Um, 
But there are a lot of limitations to all of these um, estimates of, of how to capture them. But um, those are some of the directions we're thinking of moving in. Thanks. Mm -hmm. uh, Bridget and then John. I I like the the Pittsburgh hub. I think that's that's a great mm -hmm. way to interact with the community. Though I wonder, do you have data or maybe Pittsburgh? Do you have some evidence to show that those folks that we're trying to reach use a website like this to get information about meetings? I guess I'm thinking, our, our is our targeted population that we're trying to interact with more? Is this is this? Do they interact with websites? Do they have access? On a regular basis. So that is something we might be able to track once the hub is up. Um, for anyone who visits, I think we could have pop-up windows that ask, you know, is this your first time visiting? Um, and then maybe ask them a few follow-up questions to see who's using the hub. Um, but you're right, the digital divide is is tough. And I think, um, you know, we're just at a, at a tough spot right now because it's so much uh more efficient and effective to do things digitally but um sorry so much more efficient but it's not always effective in reaching certain groups um so yeah that's a that's a big question i i'm hoping when we set up the website that we can start tracking that and if it's not getting to groups that we need then we need to push further it sort of goes with our on the ground um, recommendations that we got is that, you know, we need to spend a lot more time out in the community um, so that people will feel comfortable maybe calling or emailing instead. Yeah. Okay, um, John and then Sarah. Thanks, um, Michelle, great presentation. Um, really appreciated it. You're going to be presenting next week to the Energy Commission. I look forward to that too. Uh, it seems to me that there's two really important parallel activities that are going to have a big impact on the future of the city. One that's um, based on the city and the other is, is going to be taking place in the U University of Michigan. One is the update of the comprehensive plan and the other is uh, U of M is in parallel updating its campus plan. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm addressing this to you, but also would be maybe interested in hearing from John and Anya um, to understand how your work um, is going to certainly inform the city's process and uh, in particular the, the consulting um, entity that's going to be sort of facilitating the whole process. I mean, it seems to me what you've shown here is the real problem that we see between the ability to engage, um, engagement being typically voluntary, but not necessarily being representative. And I think what we really want to make sure is that it's representative um, while not being coercive or, or anything else. Um, right. So it seems, seems that the lessons learned and the kinds of things that you're talking about here are really important for those two processes, just because I mean, the city and the university are so dominant in uh, right. terms of how the city really um, seems to us and acts for us. Yeah. Um, so I think my role ideally would be, you know, to get this hub up 
as the comprehensive plan is rolling out um, and assisting in whatever way um, I can. Granted, they already have a consultant for the, the or they're choosing a consultant for the comprehensive plan, but as someone on staff, um, I'd like to assist in any way I can and uh, really push it through, through the hub. Um, but we did have, Heather was on the interview panel, so we did have a representative on the interview panel making sure that they're meeting our standards for engagement through that plan. Great. Okay, great. John and Anya, is, is U of M cognizant of the same kind of mismatches, most likely that are also happening in the university community? What's representative versus who's really engaging and, and, and influencing the process? If you can take 30 seconds as an aside to, to, to describe that. Um, not certain where to begin with that, because there's so many different uh, ways of interacting. Are you talking specifically about internally to the university? Or yeah, internally, but also, I mean, I suppose also, um, as far as I understand, the university with its uh, campus plan update is going to have a work stream to coordinate with the city. Um, and so, you know, hopefully that yields better outcomes, but it's these outcomes are always going to be better if they're representative as mm -hmm. opposed to just be who, who, who happens to show up. Yeah, I, I don't have any specific information. I don't know if Anya or yeah. Lisa might. Okay, yeah, um, I'll just jump in here for a second. Um, I, yeah, I agree, and um, I'm of course the, of course the most common I uh, cons uh, area of concern is affordable housing, like especially affordable, uh, you know, workforce housing, um, from the university. So there's, I would imagine there's some discussion, or so there should be some coordination between these two plans, the university and the city, about this topic in particular, you know. This has been a negotiation. Um, this has been a major negotiation point for like Geo and Leo, just having the workforce housing, so that people don't have to drive in here from, uh, you know, from from far distances. So, um, okay. Uh, so Sarah, you're next up, and then Lisa. Hi, thank you, Michelle. That was a wonderful presentation, and I'm glad you guys are working on this stuff. Um, I just wanted to quickly plug uh, the state of Michigan's environmental justice screening map. Have you heard of that yet? I have, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's just a really great tool for trying to locate, um, you know, underrepresented communities. Um, and I think as a commission, if we're looking at recruiting, that might be one place that we could look to see um, what sort of communities we should be reaching out to. Um, it's a great idea. And, yeah, and um, I guess I was wondering, you know, if you had identified like leaders of specific communities that we should be reaching out to more. Um, another thing that uh, I look at a lot in my work is um, different languages. So getting, you know, okay. important material into languages that, you know, people can actually understand if they're not, English is not their first language. Right. Um, if the city is yeah. doing anything with that, I'd be interested in hearing about that as well. Yes, um, we are looking into translation services. That was another budget request that we made. Um, we have to think through first if maybe we will save those for written materials. Um, it can be sort of tricky to have on hand, you know, a person at meetings 
depending on what language, so, you know, we'd have to find someone on retainer for that. So there's a few challenges to that, but definitely we're looking at first starting with written materials. Um, and I was going to address your other question, but I don't remember what it is. <laughs> um, it was more about recruitment and outreach. And if oh, there were specific groups you were aware yeah. of already, or if, you know, sure. we needed to work together to try to identify those groups. Um, we, so the steering committee, the equitable engagement steering committee is a great place to start. I can share that. Uh, well, I, I might have to ask them first, but I would imagine, you know, that was 30 people that were selected sort of based on groups that they represent and they were, um, you know, there was a rubric. I don't know exactly. I wasn't a part of that process, but they, they were selected for that for those reasons. Um. So I think we have a really good start with the Equitable Engagement Steering Committee. We also have a long stakeholder list that we are continuing to add to um, and using that as a basis for trying to build relationships with, um, you know, institutions in, in the city. Um, so I think that we could definitely share that kind of information um, so that you guys have a good place to start as well. That's great. Yeah, I think our process usually is if we have info we want out there, like we would send it to Sean. So I'm sure maybe Sean knows where that list is and could hook us all together on that. Mm -hmm. okay. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Lisa. You have your hand up. Yeah, Michelle, thank you so much for this presentation. You guys have done an enormous amount of work, and that's fantastic. Um, I wondered if while you all were working um, as the uh, on this committee, did you follow at all the um, community engagement around the 121 East Catherine project that the Affordable Housing Commission is doing? Mm -hmm. um, yes. Well, so Heather now works for the Housing Commission, which yes, is she a great transition. Uh-huh. Did she watch any of the engagement sessions for that? I believe I did. If we're talking about the same one, I watched um, a video where Yodi was leading the meeting with Jen Hall. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. I have yeah, yeah. seen that. That has circulated around as like a, you know, yep. a yep. good bar. <laughs> I saw that too. And what I learned from that, which uh, I think your, your results also um, emphasize, is that part of the reason why people don't come, part of the reason why uh, we're missing systematically the kinds of people that you've identified is because they don't trust the city and they don't trust that it will be worth their time to come to a meeting because they don't really believe that they will be heard or that the opinions that they express will affect a process. And so Yodit at that meeting went around and said, why did you come? And a bunch of them said, we came for you. We don't really mm -hmm. care about the city and we don't trust the city. And I took that as a really... I think a very sobering message because um, what that says to me is that if we want to, if the city wants to reach um, BIPOC communities, you know, many communities of people who don't actually even live here yet, but who might want to, we have to get to them through people whom they trust. And that's yes. hard. And yeah. so I, I like the idea of the engagement hub, but I think this is more of the same of what we do. I think it's a passive form on our part. 
because people come to it and they sign up for, for what they're interested in. But it's not what people uh, were asking for in the meeting with Yodit, which was person-to-person contact with people that they trust. Yeah. And they also indicated to you, uh, you know, you said, uh, interestingly, we're moving more and more digital, but people are asking for more and more old-fashioned flyers on <laughs> businesses that they, you know, um, patronize and, yeah. you know, more neighborhood outreach. So probably a big key of this is putting in the budget to really meaningfully develop those those community community engagement community based community engagement specialists mm-hmm. so that it there is a conduit or there is a familiar face and there is someone to speak not in jargon but to speak mm-hmm. in a, you know in a way that that affects you know that that connects actually I should say connects mm-hmm. with people yeah. that we don't normally we're not being very effective at connecting with right Right. Those are all good points, um, many of which were raised by the Equitable Engagement Steering Committee. And that's sort of what the community liaisons is meant to get at. So, um, you know, imagine you like that the city compensated Yod in some way for going into that community and running that meeting for us and relaying back to us. If they don't trust us to lead the meeting, it's finding um, people who have a connection with communities that we don't, um, and having them help us do that work, uh, a kind of a liaison that helps us build trust with them as well. Right. So what we would need to begin with is someone who can reach people who might be willing to serve that role. Yodit does this for a living. She is being well-paid by the city. Um, maybe, you know, I think she she has built a sort of citizens commission around the 121 East Catherine, but there would have to be more of those built and either yes. Yodit would have to be willing to be super busy or there'd have to be more people like Yodit who can help recruit because I don't think that the city is going to have a lot of success recruiting people to become that community liaison unless the pay is really good and there's, you know, people with a lot of street cred trying to do that work because- mm-hmm. People, people come when they think their voice is going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of a, that's a place we've got a gap, I think. But anyway, that's. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Lisa. Um, um, any other hands up? I don't see any other hands up. Okay. Um, I'm going to jump in then. I have two questions. So the first okay. one is that I noticed in your paw print, Diagram that 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 that's great, but I I thought a, a you know I, I thought like something that was missing was public works, because um, you know when most people most most of the residents think about the city, it's really the public works department that they think about, you know the water supply, the sewer, the streets, and the street lights, things like that. So um, I'm wondering. Um, I'm wondering uh, where you, where uh, staff was considering where the the whole public works arm of the city. So um, we didn't create yeah. this, Paul. The the equitable engagement steering committee. These were the topics they brought to us as being of, you know, a folk of focus areas. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but I I'm still asking the question. Okay. About public works. 
Um, I guess I would say that because it didn't come up from them, we didn't spend much time on on that. So I they, I don't think they brought forward to us, you know, complaints or grievances about that. So okay. we didn't talk about. I know what you mean, though. I mean, most meetings, it ends up being about roads, to be honest. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and what bad yeah. condition they're in. That's where there's a lot of complaints that come in. But Yeah. yeah. And a lot of fear about water quality. Um, but that. um that didn't come up with this group. Oh, okay. Um, and so my second question was about, uh, part of it is just some suggestions I'd like to put out. Um, okay. First of all, is that, you know, with these community liaisons, that's an absolutely necessary element here, but there's been talk periodically about the need for uh, an ombudsman's office. Mm-hmm. To have a central, like, uh, clearinghouse for, community concerns and so i think if if, if, in terms of like engaging with the top with the with the senior management of the city i think having a uh, having an on hiring an ombudsman and giving him the appropriate him or her or the appropriate responsibilities um would be uh would be a place to put all these um uh, the community liaison um programs so i'm just throwing that out there and um And the other thing is, you know, with um, and and with these community liaisons, I've done a fair amount of door-to-door canvassing in in, in many different communities in Ypsilanti Township, for example, mm. as well as the city and the exurbs around it. And um, I think, like, um, you know, first of all, I mean, I've done some um, service projects through my church in Detroit, and I was very impressed with the block organizations in Detroit. Mm. And this mm-hmm. is something I brought up a few times, like with Missy Stoltz, is that you know having having a strong block organization is a really good element. Yeah. And and you know the reason it's strong in Detroit is because the city abandoned a lot of these neighborhoods. Yeah. Even the police department abandoned them, and so I think if um if there's some kind of an effort to uh, to to get a block organization revived here in Ann Arbor, I understand there used to be one, um, and then. Um, and then you know the city in in the city issues permits for block parties. So, for example, having somebody just show up at the block parties uh, to talk to people and see if they could recruit people in there in those in those communities to help with yeah. community engagement. I think that would be a great idea. And then also with the schools, you know, like for example, yeah. the principal here at Burns Park um, would occasionally uh, have a PTO meeting down at Bryant Community Center. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. part of the Part of the Burns Park School District, but it's isolated down there south of I-94. And so um, so you know the, the community centers and the schools can be good places for this, but they really need to get down into a finer granularity, you know, than yeah. it has been traditional. And um, you know, and there's also our, our elected officials who are um, uh, usually aware of these things, like the council mm-hmm. members, you know. Yeah. Uh, of where there are where there are gaps, you know, in uh, in, engage, in community engagement. So, so I just wanted to throw that out there. But I think I don't know if there's been any consideration of an ombudsman's office. But I think that could be a central key to yeah. to to connecting a community liaison effort with, um, you know, with um, anybody who's um, got concerns with the city's performance. Yeah, I think those are great suggestions. Um, I 
can't speak much, nor can I really even pronounce uh, OBS. <laughs> Ombudsman, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, a whole- I, I know that that is a hot topic that, to be honest, may or may not be discussed in, in seriousness. I'm not sure, but I know that I've seen those in survey results as well. Um, as to your suggestions, um, those fit very neatly into our goal of being on the ground more, um, of visiting sites and, and building those connections. Um, there are several neighborhood organizations. Uh, I don't know how active they are, but I know there's a long list of them um, throughout the city. So that can definitely be on our list. We are creating a list of, you know, stakeholders that we want to spend more time with. It's just, there is only two of us. um, And we also have to plan all of the engagement or the projects that are ongoing. So we are trying to kind of strategically pick um, places throughout the city where we want to, you know, build relationships. And I, I think those are good suggestions. Oh, great. Yeah. And don't forget, I wouldn't forget about the faith community either. Correct. Having, yeah. a ta- having a table after church services or, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, places of worship mm-hmm. uh, I think is, is an accepted practice. And it's um, so contacting the clergy would, you know, across all faiths would be uh, probably a useful exercise. You know, sure. but, but these are traditionally institutions that are regarded as separate from the city. So that's the only mm-hmm. reason I'm bringing it up. But they do mm-hmm. exist within the community. Um, so that I, I'm sorry, I've used up a lot of time. So Lisa, you have your hand up. Oh no, she wants to lower it. Yeah. Oh, okay. All righty. <laughs> um, are there any other questions for Michelle? Um, if not, I want to very thank you deeply, Michelle, for you and the rest of the staff. Oh, thank you for, for letting me come that. here and share the results and taking it so seriously and. Um, you know, support from commissions means a lot. So um, thank you for letting me have this time. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure we well, we would all be appreciate um, uh, more continuous contact about this issue. Okay. And whatever okay, suggestions staff can make. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you again. Bye-bye. So let's move on to the next item on the agenda, which is a presentation on biosolids and wastewater management by Keith Sanders. So, Keith, would you like to uh, manage your own presentation? I am trying to bring it up now. Let me know if you can uh, see it. Well, Sean's going to have to, uh, um, you know, change the permissions. Yes, I just made you a co-host, Keith, so you should be able to share your screen now. Can you guys see that? Not yet. Not yet. Oh, huh. I can see it. Uh-oh. You may need to um, stop sharing and then try to share again. Yeah, it said it failed to share, so I'll give it another try. Nope. Uh, did you get the request from me to become a co-host? You may have to accept that before. Yeah. It there did. Is that working? Yeah, here it oh, is. Sorry. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> So what we'd like to do is give you the context for our discussion. Uh, it's a perfect timing 
to look at how we manage our biosolids. Uh, we have a new permit um, starting next summer um, that's going to be lower for phosphorus. And we're also working on a centrate treatment um, for our centrate from our centrifuges. And so this is good timing for that. Uh, we also have, um, as you know, new emerging contaminants that pop up here and there, and that seems to be a moving target. So that's kind of why we wanted to talk with you guys. Um, want to give you the background on what we do now, uh, some things going on with PFAS and biosolids, and then our future plans. And hopefully you guys will think we're going in the right direction. So our current practice is lime application or land application of lime stabilized biosolids. Um, we try to do this seven months out of the year. Um, we have a subcontractor. There's really only two in the state. We only got about 8.4 million gallons out last year. Uh, we lost about three months due to weather, truck drivers, various issues. So this number you see, the 8.4 million gallons, is, is pretty low for us. That should be probably 3 million higher. And then in the winter, um, or when, you know, we have to wait for the load limits to come off so we can start land application. So usually around end of mid to end of November through May, we're um, running our centrifuges, uh, dewaters it, and we make a cake that goes to the landfill. So these are the two things that we do now. Uh, so why we do land application? Uh, we believe it prevents landfill space from being taken up by recycled product. It puts organic matter back in the soil, uh, puts, um, for, you know, gives fertilizer for the farmers. So they don't have to rely on commercial fertilizer. So it saves them some money. So there's, you know, there's a reason they want to participate with us. However, there's some drawbacks to land application. Uh, it requires a lot of semi-trucks to the site. There's anywhere from 13 to 20 round trips. Uh, they haul 10,000 gallon tankers. To, the, to our site every day, and then they go out to farmers' fields, which can be up to 40, 50 miles away. Um, weather affects us with, with climate change. These freak weird storms that we're now getting a lot um, has really affected our ability to, I mean, this last season, we didn't haul for a month and a half from middle of June to probably the end of July, um, just because the rains and things like that. Our subcontractors seem to be having a hard time finding semi-drivers like everyone else. Uh, the fluctuating fuel prices has them constantly, you know, looking for more money or saying, you know, they can't, they won't be able to perform the service if it hits $5 a gallon. There's only two of them that ever bid on it in the state. Um, we had one leave because they said it, it didn't pay enough. And then we will get into the emerging contaminants like PFAS. Um, that's just the, the current one, if you will. And so one of the things that, that kind of gives us pause um, is Maine has banned all biocells application, no matter the concentration. EPA is considered listing uh, PFAS and FOA as under CERCLA regs, which could make it a hazardous waste, which would affect our ability to land apply. And then health advisories are coming out. And so PFAS limits have really are a moving target right now, and we don't know where they're gonna land. Uh, Michigan is, is a prime example of that. We're up to 28 compounds and there's more coming as soon as the tests get approved. Uh, they're only limiting one right now and that's PFAS. 
Uh, it started out that it was anything greater than 125 was industrial impacted and you couldn't land apply. Then it was if you're under 125 but greater than 50, you notify Eagle. And then if you're under 50, you can land apply, but you really need to look for um, your source. And now they've got it under 20, you need to keep looking for sources. So it's really a, a moving target that we're really not sure where it's going to end. And one of the most important things of running a wastewater plant is being able to get rid of those solids. Because if you can't, then you won't be able to put out a, a high quality effluent to meet your permit. Uh, real quick, here's some of our results. Um, you know, since 2020, we have had six detects of PFAS. We or PFAS to compounds total. We've had 11 samples since uh, January of 2020. We've had three detects of PFOS. We had a four, a 9.5, and a 0 0.37. And then we had three other compounds that had detects also. So we, we are pretty clean, but still, if they go with CERCLA, it will really affect our ability to get rid of our biosolids. So we've kind of talked about land app and some of the, the concerns with merging contaminants. So when we do landfill, it's easier on our plant operations. Um, they're pretty reliable. The landfill almost never closes and it isn't weather dependent. If it rains, they can still haul to the landfill. And again, the most we would take is probably two to four round trips total. Right now we're doing one to two per day, but in the summer where we haven't necessarily hauled, you know, we we produce more solids that have to be dealt with just because the bugs are more active. And we're trying to keep a certain mixed liquor um, in the aeration deck. Also, we believe there's less risk of emerging contaminants because this being in a landfill that's lined instead of spread out in the environment. So another benefit there. There are some drawbacks to landfill. Um, the centrate can have a, a, an effect on our biological phosphorus treatment and raise our um, phosphorus and our effluent. We are working on a side stream uh, centrate treatment. So by doing nothing but uh, centrifuging this year, it will allow us to fine tune that. So next year when our permit is lower for phosphorus, we should be able to, you know, meet that readily. So that's one of the, the, the positives too with timing. Uh, limited landfill space, landfill acceptance, some landfills, uh, I've heard are not taking some biosols because they say it, it doesn't pack well and causes their landfill to have voids or or slide. Um, there's also possible odors. We we didn't have any last July and it was pretty warm, but you could have odors at the wastewater treatment plant or at the landfill, and they could say you know it's they don't want the load because it smells, and you aren't recycling the nutrients and your organic matter back to the soil when you send it to the landfill. A cost comparison right now, it's a little bit cheaper to landfill. Um, this is based on our current rates. Um, I know that we have a really cheap landfill rate. Um, our, our rate to truck it and tip it at the landfill is less than $30 a dry ton. And I, everyone I talk to is flabbergasted. So, you know, that bid could change and that could change this cost comparison. But, but for now, um, it's it's cheaper to landfill. And you can see even with land application, there's still some landfill costs because 
at best, we're only going to be able to land apply for seven months. So what we're recommending going forward is to flip our practice and um, just do landfilling and keep land application as a backup just in case because you always want to have two ways to get rid of your uh, biosolids so you can meet your permit. Um, we would only use land application if we couldn't find a landfill and there was no other way to get rid of the, the biosolids. Um, we're, we're working on the centrate treatment. We hope to you know fine tune that and, and get that dialed in for next summer. Uh, we're continually working on odors. Um, on the CIP, there's carbon scrubbing for the truck loadout to, to grab those and run that through activated carbon. Uh, we're looking at the addition of a biodigester to get that plan that will help stabilize the uh, unstabilized primary waste activated. So that would reduce odors for us going forward. Uh, we use a chemical called Planet Breeze that, that the landfill says helps reduce odors. They're, they're happy with that. And then we have a carbon system in the solids handling building that we would uh, keep doing the O&M to ensure that that is grabbing as many odors as we can also. And that is really what we would like. Oh, Brian has his hand up. Yeah. Uh, Brian, you have the floor. Sure. Thanks, Keith, for for the presentation. Um, you know, we'll we're obviously here to also answer any questions. But I guess before we do that, I just want to share. And, and I apologize, I can't get my camera working um, in a remote location. Um, but. There are a couple other points of note related to PFAS and biosolids. I mean, this is a pretty dynamic space in the regulatory environment right now. We're waiting imminently to find out what the um, EPA is going to do on drinking water, for example. Um, it's overdue, and we should be hearing within the next few weeks if there are, um, what the EPA's regulations are going to be around PFAS elements. Um, we're also, as uh, Keith mentioned, still waiting and trying to figure out how Congress is going to handle circle obligation and whether um, water and wastewater utilities will get a categorical exclusion. What we're hearing so far is very unlikely. So that puts us in um, you know, a, a position of risk. Um, and then there is also ongoing litigation currently in the state of Michigan associated with PFAS application on farmland. So even though our, our, the concentration of PFAS in our biosolids is low and sometimes non-detected, Recall that it takes time for us to get those analytical results, and we're not—we we wouldn't be seeing them until after the PFAS has been left and or and disposed of. Um, and we, since we know we do have an issue with um, occasional concentrations of things that we know to be a health impact, um, philosophically, we believe that we shouldn't be um, land applying it and and basically allowing the PFAS to aggregate in the food chain. Um, so that has been really the driver for this change in approach that we've um, that we're planning on implementing this year. So with that, I will open it up to questions from you all. Okay, thanks, Brian. Um, yeah, John, and then Rita, and then Anya. <clears throat> thanks, Brian and Keith. Um, good presentation. Uh, I, I agree with the primary thrust of not uh, allowing PFAS to be distributed on, on cropland. I was a little surprised that on slide 10, there was no mention of the fact that we're gonna be taking 
organic matter, sending it to landfill. And in landfill, um, it's going to be creating methane as a greenhouse gas. And so there is a negative impact there. I don't know if that tips the scale. And I don't know if anyone's made any calculation as far as what the impact would be to the city's greenhouse gas emissions. But I think it should be at least recognized and calculated, and then we can evaluate whether or not it's it's anything significant or not. I mean, we celebrate every every couple of houses that are electrified, for example, in the Bryan neighborhood, and something like this could could be, I don't know, factor ten times that or whatever. So it just it seems to me that should be somehow in, calculated in the in the overall equation. Thanks. Yeah, I wasn't sure um, if our landfill has a methane to energy recovery. Um, some do, some don't. You know, they they take it. We, we've went to a couple different landfills, so I mean, I can try to figure out what they have at the one they're going to net. We're going to now, and and see if they have that because they might be creating energy. Um, and I have seen studies that say, you know, they create more methane and energy in a landfill because it de speeds up the decomposition, and they've been able to produce more gas to create more electricity or or clean it up and put it in the grid. So. And that, that possibility is certainly there. I don't think it's there right now. And in fact, I think as a part of the city's greenhouse gas emissions, there is a, a small percentage that is due to organic matter um, going to landfill and um, being transformed into methane that escapes in the environment. Thanks, that's, that's all, thanks. Okay, Rita, and then Anya. Uh, thanks for the presentations really important. Um, my question has to do with, um, there was a slide that mentioned the source of PFAS. And I just wondered if, if once it's discovered, what you meant by that source, is it tracked back to anything in particular? Is there anything we can learn at, to um, reduce the load um, in, in the biosolids? We are actually in a really good spot because we have not really found a source of PFAS. We're really at the background level. Our influence is right around three to four for PFAS and PFOA, which I understand is normal, if you will, because of uh, shedding from nonstick pans. Um, you know, uh, toilet paper has it in there and things like that. So that's kind of like the background level, which isn't good, but that's what I'm hearing is a background level in most wastewater. So mm -hmm. those are for, you know, when you see those numbers of 50 and 120, those are for places that have, they've had like a tri bar or they've had a plater or they've had somebody like that or landfill leachate, right? Where they've been able to go up the stream, find them and then say, hey, you know, you really have to treat this at, at the source and get that treated. Mm -hmm. We're okay. so low that we have not been able to find anybody, you know, when you're at the three three and four. Right. Okay. Thanks. Well, I have another the, question. the source is, is the drinking water system. So that's the, probably the primary source to the wastewater plant, uh, which is what our source is. So, uh -huh. and that's one of our concerns in the sure. CERCLA classification is, is that the city could be identified as a generator. And we did see when Tribar got their levels down, it was lower at the at the water plant, when, right, Brian? When you guys put the carbon in, we did see it go down at our NRF load too. So I mean, we we could see that, and that's going to affect our biocells. Mm -hmm. 
So just one more question. Um, with our um, goal of, of uh, having more people live in Ann Arbor, is, are there any concerns that you have in terms of the volume of biocells that you'll be processing with managing them in the future? Not really. Um, we see it, it's, it's kind of crazy. I've been with the city for 13 years and our flow used to be at 18 nonstop. And the, since COVID, we've been closer to 14 and 13 million gallons a day. So there's been growth through that period, but our flows just, you know, haven't, haven't seen that. So I think it's, you know, tightening up the system and things like that. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we can always process, we have the centrifuges and the capability to process it. So. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I'm Anya and then Lisa. Um, I, I had a question similar to what uh, Commissioner Mursky brought up, um, and, and I understand that the PFAS being land applied and, and getting back into food systems and, and whatnot is uh, the primary concern. Um, but I do think it'd be interesting to at least have that calculation and understanding of what the emissions would be, you know, associated with landfilling that organic material. But then I imagine it's to at least to some degree offset if you know, the landfill is closer than some of these farms that it's also being trucked to. So, you know, is, is there a savings from not trucking it? I, I don't know. But I think I think that that would probably be a, worth, be a worthwhile data point to have. Um, and then I was wondering if if there are fluctuations in how much the PFAS readings are, you know, and if if so, is there a possibility of doing a hybrid approach where, you know, if it's at a certain level, it goes to the landfill, if it reads at a lower level, it can be land applied or, or if it's if it's pretty consistent, you really sort of just need to pick yeah. one primary. Um, it's, it's pretty consistent lately and the testing is getting better. One of the problems with going back and forth is, you know, staff, I, when we do lime stabilization, it's a different process. So we have to make lime, we have to raise that pH for to 12 for two hours and, um, you can't run that through a centrifuge. It will tear up your centrifuge. So, and you don't want to have unstabilized and stabilized, and you're trying to do two different processes. Inevitably, someone misses a valve, and then you're sending unstabilized stuff out to a farmer's field, which is really bad, right? Um, and like Brian said, you, you it's so hard to get data. We have about 1.2 million gallons of storage, which is about two weeks worth. And PFAS data takes... I would say four to six weeks to get back. I mean, even if you paid a rush, I don't know if we'd have it back in time to be able to then say, okay, now this is how we want to process it. It'd be a very difficult um, thing, I believe, for us to to try to do. And the the wastewater site is pretty confined, so there's you know if we could put in a six seven million gallon tank, we we'd have all kinds of time, you know. But we're really, if you look, we got a railroad to our north. The river wraps around us. And we've pretty much used almost every square foot of green space. Um, some places that show green space is either saved for, for future growth or there's stuff buried in the ground that you can't see. So it's it, so much I would love to. It'd be, I think it would be really hard. Mm -hmm. um, okay, thanks, Keith. Uh, Lisa, you have your hand up. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is really very um, illuminating. Um, I just wanted to make sure, first of all, that I that I followed what you were saying in response to Commissioner Mitchell. So you're saying that our levels three to four are on, in one sense, 
not alarming because what it means is that we don't have someone who's actually polluting or, you know, like a tri-bar, you know, uh, so there, we don't, we don't have a, a spill problem. We don't have an external, someone who's externalizing their, um, their costs, you know, by polluting our water. But on the other hand, that the source of our PFAS is most likely the water treatment plant. And so, and you saw, I thought, I want to make sure that I followed Keith, what you said, that when the city started treating the, at the water treatment plant with carbon, there was a decrease in PFAS at the wastewater treatment plant. In our input, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's, that's nice. That's a good story. So I also understand, so I understand that. Um, and I agree with that. We do have a moral imperative, regardless of what EPA does with regulations, not to put more PFAS in the food chain than is already there. It's bad enough that it's going there from, you know, snack food wrappers and stuff. I get that. I also get that we're sort of under the threat of the water treatment plant being viewed as a polluter, and that would be not a good thing at all. Um, but I do want to raise that one drawback about landfilling, um, in addition to the methane concerns and the CO2 issues, is that we do landfill um, outside Washtenaw County, and we do landfill to a county that um, where average incomes are lower and property values are lower. And so we are, with respect to that county, we are externalizing um, the costs of what we do in Ann Arbor. And we should at least acknowledge the environmental justice issues of an increased, you know, of shifting systematically um, to landfilling of our biosolids. That's a constant systematic increase of what we're sending to, of what we're diverting to landfills. And I'm understanding that this is not a perfect world and this probably is our best solution, but we shouldn't let those things go unmentioned. And, um, you know, in a, in a really great world, which I don't know if we're in it, we would think of ways to mitigate that, you know, some, forms of investment that would acknowledge we were doing this, but yeah. Thank you, Lisa. Sarah, and then Brian. Hi, Keith and uh, Brian. I I just wanted to express my support uh, for moving away from land application of biosolids. Uh, I think landfilling is the smarter option going forward. Um, I, I'm pretty familiar with RICRA, and I know that that has a agricultural exemption. Um, so if you, you know, apply biosolids to a ag field under normal ag practices, um, that that would then be exempt under Part 201. Um, I'm a lot less familiar with CERCLA. Um, so I guess I was wondering, um, going forward, um, you know, obviously any new laws that are put out regarding PFAS we want to comply with, uh, but could CERCLA also be retroactive where historic applications of biosolids with PFAS the city would have liability for? Um, so sort of like say we applied back in 1985 and now there's a field with PFAS and people are eating the corn. Um, would the city be liable for that as well under CERCLA? I would um, I'll, I'll start 
the answer. I mean, I, the answer to some of these questions are just we just don't know. And th this is something that we're we're watching and listening. Um, the whole the water and wastewater industry is pretty unified in their approach um, and has been aggressively lobbying um, Congress about these issues. So, you know, what we've heard is, is it's going to be really difficult for um, Congress probably to list a categorical exclusion for water and wastewater facilities because it opens a door and weakens the strength of the program. Totally. So we're not optimistic that we're going to get that. However, what EPA is also saying is their intention, intention through that program is not to enforce, you know, bring enforcement actions against utilities because they're not really the original generators. Um, right. The utility space is not thrilled with that approach because there is liability um, that would be remaining under the act. So it's hard to know exactly how it will impact us until we see exactly what they do um, in terms of how they incorporate it and classify it. So we'll be evaluating the liability and risk as this moves forward. But there is always um, just um, liability like from just being sued, um, which is what's already happening. You know, there are cases in Michigan. Um, so part of it is is just, you know, if we, we know that this is an issue, um, any decisions that we make now are not irreversible. I just wanted to make that point. So, you know, if we take this approach now and as information comes in and we want to reevaluate um, with our attorney's office our risk and liability, we can always return to land application. But at this point, with the uncertainty um, and the active litigation that we're seeing in the state, we feel like this is the prudent decision for the city to make for this coming season. Um, and it's something that we can talk about. Um, we'll have a lot more information as this year progresses, and we can come back and talk to you about what we've learned and whether we think it's appropriate to adjust our approach um, later on this year. Yeah, we've 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 told our the land application contractors that if we're, we're planning on this for a year, because one thing we don't want to lose is our application sites, and we don't want them to you know come in and just raid them all. So. Yeah. All right. Thank you. I was just more interested in like the legal framework. So thank you for that answer. Yeah. Um, any other questions for Brian and uh, Keith? Okay. Well, I'm going to jump in here now. And um, so um, thank you, first of all, uh, Keith and Brian. I think you guys, I agree with Sarah that you've done um, a, a very prudent analysis and you have a very good approach here. Um, you know, for the time being, considering, you know, weighing all the risks and and, and our responsibilities. So um, I was just wondering, um, you know, and thank you for the data that you presented. I'm not sure if you're willing to share the more detailed data, uh, the PFAS analyses that, that you get and what averages are like. But um, um, I, I just had a question that, do you know uh, at what time you're going to start using the EPA 1633 or asking you know, your analytical labs to use the EPA 1633 um, method. And as soon as, it's a, as soon as it's approved, we will, you know, and that's what they'll have to go to, right? That's what uh, the Eagle will require us, so. Yeah, okay. It's It's been in draft for three years, so um, I expect it's going to happen soon. Um, I okay. also believe that one's going to add some more parameters, sorry, but I believe that's going to add some more parameters too. Um, yeah. And the 28 you saw, I think it's going to, 
will be up over 28 uh, PFAS compounds that will be sampled for. Yeah. And so another aspect of that is, is you guys contracting a top analysis as well on top of that 1633. It's a sample pretreatment. It's called total organic precursor because, you know, it was noticed uh, decades ago that a lot of these PFAS compounds break down into PFOS and PFOA. And so you can get variable results in the fact that you might not see it. You might not see a certain level of PFOS you know, in your sample, in your, especially in a soil or biosolid sample, um, that over time, through natural chemical processes, you will see it. Um, it will, it will, it will crop up because uh, it was first noticed because in a lot of, um, you know, so uh, wastewater treatment plants, um, you know, you had more PFOS coming out than was going in. So, and we have that sometimes, right? Yeah, we try to so, we try to take our effluent sample a day later because it's about a twenty four hour run through the plant. So we yeah. try to see in and out, and and sometimes you will see a little higher from that breakdown. Yeah, it also yeah. chains. So so many other jurisdictions have gone to using a top assay just so that they have like a final endpoint, you know, for what what that product what that substance or product, if you want to call that your biosolids, a product that. You know that that's what the um, ultimate concentration of PFOS in is going to be in there, PFOA, because those were the legacy compounds that were most. Um, so I would recommend it's it's really just a sample pretreatment. So the top assay, um, you know, you can just have that done. But a lot of times people use both top plus like sixteen thirty three or just sixteen thirty three just to see, you know, what the precursor background is. You know, they're called. PFOS precursors, but that's a uh, that's a test that was published maybe 20, well, 12 years ago um, to do that. And I know it's offered by all the major, you know, companies like, um, you know, um, Eurofins and Merit Labs, things like that. So they, they all have uh, a top method as part of their offerings, their analytical offerings. So um, I would just recommend you do that just to see um, what maybe the load is. Um, I'm not sure if Eagle is regulating that now. I don't uh, believe that's required. Probably not. So I understand that you know you're reluctant, your reluctance, rightfully so, to do things that are not are outside what the current regulation is. But um, I think it could be a prudent practice um, in the future. And then, um, and then also with your landfill costs, um, you you mentioned a number for your landfilling costs. So if you know if uh, you know if um, the city's biosolids came up above whatever CERCLA, you know, whatever number is established by the EPA for the CERCLA for biosolids. Um, whenever that number comes, how much uh, how much would that cost to the city go up if you're landfilling at a hazardous waste dump? Yeah, I, we'd have to get a quote, right? Because now it couldn't, you'd be going to a totally different landfill, right? Yeah. Now you'd probably have to go to a hazardous waste landfill and that's, You'd have to find one somewhere that could. No, take there's it. only there's there's only one in Michigan, and it's in in Willow Run. Yeah, so we'd have Run to. You know, we'd have to get a quote from them at the time, and I imagine yeah. if that happens, there's going to be a lot of wastewater plants going that way. So it 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 unfortunately, I bet it won't be a reasonable number. Yeah, you'll want to get in line there. <laughs> but yeah that's that's a potential you know it's uh what some people would call an unintended consequence but when you think these things all through you know um um 
you have less unintended consequences. So um, I, I presume you're being regulated by the NPDES permit? Yeah, for the biosolids, yes. Well, yeah. it's, it's yeah, the NPDES permit puts you under the, the Part 24 rules for Michigan. And then, they're, you know, the IPP, really, they're running most of PFAS under industrial pretreatment for sampling and, and finding it for your influent and effluent. But the biosolids, that you have to take one sample before you start applying, and you have to send a letter to every farmer where you're going to apply what your level is. Yeah, 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 I'm, I'm aware of that. I, I spend a lot of time on PFAS, mostly through the Sierra Club uh, National Organization. But um, um, so, okay, um, so I just have one comment, um, and that is that um, I'm not sure what you mean by the centrate process. Could you give so a brief description? Yeah. Of that? So we take you take the the biosolids and you put them in a centrifuge and spin it really okay. fast, and the liquid that drops out is our centrate, and then the cake, the solids goes into a hopper that goes to the landfill. So that centrate that you spin you spin out has to be treated, so it goes back to the head of the plant, and it, it's a pretty pretty high load to the plant. So we're trying to m minimize that load, tie that up before it hits the plant, so we don't see it you know, that, that bump. Okay. And then the second, I realized there's also a concern about this, the fact that you don't have much land, uh, extra land to use for upgrading the waste, current wastewater treatment plant. So I don't know, I don't know whose pay grade this comes down to. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe, I, I just want to throw out there that one thing that's always been considered um, in the, in this area of, uh, uh, wet and solid waste is gray water is um, is getting separation of gray water so it does not enter the sewer system you know gray water is basically stuff coming out of your shower your showers and your uh, kitchen sink and um, you know and um, and uh, I know you, you've been talking mostly about PFOS but um, um, the phosphorus of course is another thing so uh, we might want to revisit this issue sometime uh, later this year, um, you know, with, um, you know, with the wastewater and, and the phosphorus, the nutrient um, uh, problems. And, um, and so um, that's all I wanted to say at this point. But um, you guys are doing a top job. So thank you so much, given the stresses. And uh, my, my and just to throw this in, one of the deficiencies of the CERCLA laws is that they don't recognize a pass-through, you know, as it, and, um, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you get sued and then you have to sue somebody else and, you know, it just goes up the chain. And so 90% of all the CERCLA funds were spent on lawyers, not on cleanups. So, um, that's, that's something that has to change at the federal level. So, um, okay. So, um, if there's no other questions or comments, um, I don't hear or see any, so let's move on to the next item of the agenda, which is uh, discussion of the solid waste budget. Um, um, uh, Sean, could you just put up the um, um, the page we got from city staff, which basically the, the, all all the data we've gotten so far from um, you know from the city is about um, you know is the uh, the solid waste fund the status of the solid waste fund. So, um, and so, 
and uh, there and they they will not be available uh, to present uh, anything in more detail to the commission until our April meeting. So um, if you can page down, Sean, um, you see here's the table. So we have um, you know fiscal year 2021 and fiscal year 2022, which I believe ended in uh, July of 2022. So we have these numbers. Um, there's nothing of great concern here. Um, but we do see that the unrestricted fund balance is, is quite high. It's like $13 million and $19 million in fiscal year 2022. So, um, oh, Brian, you have your hand up. Yeah, I'm, I'm available to answer any questions that you might have. I may or may not be able to answer them, but I wouldn't mind just prefacing um, before you get into discussion and questions. Um, I anticipated that there would probably be a question about the unrestricted fund balance. And you can see the change in that um, had to do with how we calculate some of these things like OPEB um, and pension adjustments, landfill liability. So these are things that are done at the end of the fiscal year, um, basically to recalibrate based on current interest rates. And um, so it's sort of an on paper um, re rebalancing recalculation that happens that basically ended up with um, an increase this year. Other years, it goes the other direction. So, you know, we can't always rely on that, you know. So we, we one, try to maintain um, a fund balance that allows us to handle the variability in some of these expenditures. Um, but our principle, which I think is really the most important point that I want to make in terms of managing our solid waste millage and the revenues, is to ensure that our recurring expenses are being able to be covered by our the revenues that we're getting from the millage. Um, so the you know we don't want to be in a position where we're adding um, services that could become recurring commitments to the community if we don't have a revenue source, a, re a recurring revenue source to be able to fund those. So we see the fund balance um, to be used for things like if we need to replace vehicles, which can be very expensive. Um, the drop-off station is another major project, which is gonna be, um, you know, the price keeps going up. Um, I'm sure you're all following that. We don't really know what the final number is gonna be until we get through sort of a lot of decision-making design. Um, but it's in the the many millions, um, you know, over five, less than 10-ish. So we want to be positioned to be able to fund those things. And that is what our intention of using the fund balance is for. Obviously, we're also seeking partners in that project, um, as well as grant funding and other revenue resources. So the city would not be footing the whole bill. Nonetheless, our contribution is still going to be significant. Um, so I just don't want you to see a big number, 19 million, and think that we're sort of flush with cash to spend on lots of new things. Right. Um, we are very prudent about, you know, making sure again that we're balancing our budget. We do have some resources that will um, augment some of the services that we are providing in this space through the climate millage. Um, so those are some things that, again, that's a recurring revenue source. So we are able to utilize some of that to expand some of our um, recycling services and and circular economy goals and things like that. So with that, I'll stop, but I just wanted to preface the discussion with some of those points. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Brian. Uh, that was that was very instructive. 
And so, um, I mean, my only concern at, at, at looking at this was just the large variation, the large variances, which are sometimes like a, a sign that you that um, you don't really have control over your, um, you know, over uh, over some of the um, liabilities and some of the assets here. So, for example, with the OPEB pension adjustments, you know, they seem to vary quite a bit from year to year. And so uh, it's not clear why those are so variable, as well as the uh, landfill liability adjustment. Yeah, I'm not really prepared. I mean, th this year, interest rates um, changes has been one pretty significant factor, and that has changed very dramatically um, over the past few years. Um, so that has, in this case, worked in our favor associated with some of these liabilities. Um, if we we can schedule a time if you have much more detailed financial questions to bring someone from our finance group um in yeah. to talk to you about it so i'm really not positioned to talk about that i will add one other thing that i did want to mention there are some uncertainties we have moving forward that we would that are changes that we want to make sure that we have clarity on also before we make some other commitments and one of those things for is our solid waste franchise um agreement for commercial um properties downtown. So that, um, and that's, you know, on a, I think it's on our next council agenda, there's going to be some ordinance changes associated with that, where waste management will actually be doing the customer service, the billing. We've been collecting um, revenue associated with providing those services that is going to go away. Um, and now waste management will be getting that because they're going to be providing those services. So we, we still have some, you know, understanding to do on what this, how this is going to impact us um, in terms of, you know, we were paying people to do some of these services and now waste management is. So, um, you know, we're going to be re able to repurpose staff and things like that. But that does impact sort of our bottom line because we had costs associated with these funds that will not be reimbursed with a revenue source. Um, we also have, as you're all um, aware of, but renegotiated our contract with RAA, provide multifamily and recycling service, um, commercial um, recycling services, and that has gone up um, at a rate greater than what our um, our millage is providing us. So there are things like that that we have to figure out and make sure that we can absorb again before we start really changing the suite of services that we're going to be providing. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thanks for that clarification, Brian. That's great. Um, and you know, we will be having this as a major uh, item on our April agenda. Um, but yeah, we appreciate having the finance person there because that's been a traditional interaction between the Environmental Commission and the Solid Waste Department. So, um, John, you have your hand up and then Chris. Yes, I think it makes most sense that we shift <clears throat> to the, or delay the uh, most of the discussion on this to the April meeting. And I think it's important um, for the reason that these figures without context and without an explanation are hard to interpret. Um, first of all, I think um, Brian's right about um, the unrestricted fund balance and the big shifts, that those are things that are you know, happening outside of uh, the sphere of influence even of, of, of the city, like interest rates and things like that. Um, but there are other things um, that are within our, I think our sphere of influence that probably are driving some of these. And um, I can only um, make, uh, make a conjecture as to what those might be. For example, material recovery costs went up. I'm assuming that might have been 
um, winter organics collection. Um, it would be nice to know if that's indeed the driver. It would be nice to know if what the tonnage of that was and did we, you know, collect a sufficient amount of tonnage um, to justify the additional expense and the additional greenhouse gases of trucks going around once in a month to picking things up. So uh, what, what I do see here, which I find uh, reassuring, is that roughly revenues and expenses are balanced the last two years. I mean, there, there's there's not a big variance um, at just the operating level, which is which is um, good. And what that reflects is a change from what we saw maybe five or six years ago. Uh, I, I shared with a few people, I think Steve and Rita in particular, a slide that was shown by Crescent Slaughton to the Environmental Commission. I think it was in December of 2017 that showed um, big projected gaps between uh, revenues and expenses and actually forecasting several years out that the unrestricted fund balance was going to go below zero. And we're, we're certainly nowhere um, close to anything like that. And in fact, uh, we got communication from Sarah that the target for the unrestricted fund balance has uh, been raised from 15 to 25% of uh, operating expenses which would put that um, at roughly four and a half million. If you look at um, the average roughly of the last two years of $18 million a year as expenses. So we're, we're well above the four and a half million um, that we had before. So compared to where we were several years ago, there's just, I think a lot of good news, but my recommendation is not to cut off anybody else's comments or discussion, but that I think we're gonna get a lot more in the April meeting, especially if we get someone from finance and from operations there that can explain um, some of these things. And one of the things that I would ask, Brian, is that we do get an understanding of if the, the target for the unrestricted fund balance is, say, roughly $5 million, and we're somewhere in this, um, let's say, 12 to $19 million range, um, what is it that we might be using these funds for? You talked about trucks, and we know we want to electrify um, our, our, our trucks. Um, that's going to be a huge expense. So it would be interesting to hear um, what what that restricted funds balance could potentially be used for for one-time um, type of expenditures. So that that's the extent of my comments. Thanks. Hey, thank you, John. Brian, you have your hand up. Yeah, if I could just respond to um, a couple of the points. I mean, the 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 goals for unrestricted fund balance, you know, are are based on you know best best practice practice to have cash on hand to handle expenses associated with operating um, all of this, all of these things that are identified here. So as we're planning for um, some significant capital investments, that's where we're putting those resources, right? So you need to take out of that what we're setting aside for the drop-off station and some other investments as an example. And then I think that balance is much closer towards what our, our target would be. Um, you can see in FY22, um, you know, our budget, our expenses were budgeted to be greater than our budget for FY22. So we were fortunate um, that that's not didn't turn out to be the case. Um, but, you know, we're, you know, I, I would say it was a good year from a financial standpoint. But if what we budgeted turned out to be the case, we would have actually had a loss. Um, so, you know. And there are lots of reasons why it didn't turn out that way, but nonetheless, you know, we are, th this is a fund that is 
our root, our regularly recurring costs and our regularly recurring revenues are very, very close. And there is not a lot um, of leeway um, in terms of, again, service growth if we're going to try to meet our financial goals um, without dipping into this unrestricted fund balance. Yep. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Brian. Any other questions about this? Um, I agree. Let's, let's, uh, I think we need to table any further discussion about this until April. So um, let's move on to the next uh, item on the agenda, which would be uh, the Environmental Commission policy recommendations for 2024. This is going to be brief. Uh, basically, I'm going to ask for a volunteer or a couple of volunteers. And uh, the fact is that, um, you know, we missed a deadline back in Jan uh, December for the city's um, policy recommendations and policy and legislative uh, recommendations for 2023. So what we'd like to do is have, um, I need a volunteer for somebody to review these. Um, looking in, we have some uh, some examples of what the commission had uh, submitted in 2019, uh, in December of 2019. Um, this is, uh, this is um, a topic that's uh, sometimes fallen from fallen beneath the radar, especially during COVID. And, um, you know, based on communications problems. So I'm just trying to regularize a process where we can interact and, and, and get our input into to city council and to staff in time um, for these to be, uh, for these policy recommendations to be, uh, you know, to be completed, um, including input from the, uh, not just the Environmental Commission, but the other commissions as well. So, um, so uh, is somebody willing to take to take this on as a uh, um, right? Please raise your hand electronically. Yeah, anybody going once, going twice? Hey, Steve, is this a question that could be for, referred to each one of the, the working groups, natural features, pollinators, et cetera, et cetera? I could do that. So that was going to be my backup. So um, I guess I'll manage that process, and what I'll, we'll be doing is we'll have we'll have a meeting with the people who are uh, uh, leading the the different working groups and committees. Okay, so uh, you'll be hearing from me uh, later today. So um, okay, so moving on to the next item: reports from committees, other commissions, council, and chair. So let's do the committees first. Uh, um, natural features. No comment. No comment. Okay. Um, um, solid waste. John. Zero waste. We're going to call it. Right? I mean zero waste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're continuing to work with our C student group. Their report's coming in in a few weeks, and Sam McMullen is organizing uh, another larger group meeting sometime later this month. I think that's about it. Anything else, Lisa? Well, Sam's also doing the zero waste challenge at the university this week, which is great. Really good to see. Yeah, yeah that was a great program. So, um, okay, thank you, John. Um, how about pollinators? Rita? You're muted. Hi. Yep. Thank you. Um, first off, I want to thank my fellow commissioners for who've joined in on the pollinator work group. We've had some some good discussions. Um, 
we are working toward a spring and actually a full range of seasonal approach to um, supporting pollinators in the community um, and kind of modifying what was Novo May last year. Um, so stay tuned. We're still working with city staff on a communications plan and a, a method so that we can get information out um, effectively to people to uh, help them participate and understand. Um, I'm also looking forward to uh, adding some um, comments to that policy document because I think we'll have some good ones. Great. That's it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Rita. Um, so water quality, I don't have anything to report uh, this month. Um, so let's move on to other commissions. Um, um, let's see, um, Ann Marson is absent, so that's it for the Parks Commission. And uh, Dharma Ackman is absent, so the Transportation Commission uh, will hear from them next month, um, or maybe in a few weeks, actually, since this is technically the February meeting. So planning, um, <laughs> Shannon. Planning Commission updates. We had a series of meetings canceled, so we don't have a ton um, to report here, but there are a few things. Um, one was that uh, we were supposed to be working on the electrification ordinance, but that has been stymied by a lot of things. And so we're looking forward to that coming. It is in the hopper. Um, and then the other big one, I think, is the 415 West Washington uh, project that the city is putting uh, that the Ann Arbor Housing Commission is kind of shepherding through the entitlement process um, and that it's a, it's a brownfield site with floodway and floodplain. And uh, there's a lot of controversy and back and forth around housing and in that area, um, given the floodplain, but also realizing that there's a lot of, it's not a super straightforward thing because um, it's going to be very difficult to clean that site up unless there is some sort of development on it. So it's one of those like really tricky, sticky situations that's not easy to, um, not not super black and white there. So that's still kind of um, filtering through uh, the process. Um, so I know some folks on environmental commission have um, a lot of opinions about that too. Um, so anyway, that's that's that happened in this last stretch as well. Okay, thanks, Shannon. Um, energy? Yes, uh, we canceled our February meeting for the reason that Shannon mentioned, and that was that uh, um, we were planning on a, a joint session focusing on natural gas ban through uh, change into our ordinance, our zoning ordinance. And um, in our meeting next Tuesday, we've got a number of things, uh, and some of these I think are important for the Environmental Commission. We're going to get a report from Missy Stoltz um, about the um, Community Climate Action Millage and the fiscal year 24 and 25 budgets. Um, I don't know if that's on the radar for this group, but it seems to me it would be of interest. Um, we're going to have the same presentation that Michelle gave today. Um, we uh, are also um, going to consider uh, a resolution that was referred to Energy Commission um, asking the city administrator to engage with the Michigan legislature and the Michigan um, Public Services Commission um, to advance energy equi equity and resilience in uh, 
the aftermath of uh, the recent power outages that we've had. Um, and um, we're hoping that'll be um, interesting. We're going to have a second reading of the performance transparency resolution. So that will most likely go to a vote. And then there's a new resolution um, that uh, is going to be considered as a first reading, which is gonna be in support of accelerated action on an ordinance to ban a natural gas ban in new construction, given that it's been two and a half years and we still don't have anything in place. And I think equally important included in that is gonna ask for um, support in devising and implementing interim measures that could incentivize all electric construction. Uh, the concern being that um, if we do implement a natural gas ban, we already have received a letter from the Home Builders Association saying that it's gonna be challenged legally. And we don't know if that legal challenge will be dismissed in one day or take three years to rectify. So the question is, what are we gonna do in the interim so that we don't have an average of a project a month coming forward that is not going to be um, all electric. So those are the things that are on our agenda for next Tuesday. Okay, Thanks. thank you, John. Yeah, I would urge everybody to watch this commission meeting and um, and track this. I know uh, these items were part of the, uh, of the legislative and policy document that the city council released back in December. Uh, they're major things. As Matt Grokoff told me two or three years ago when he's working on the Viridian project, this sustainable uh, construction is illegal in Michigan. It is illegal. Sustainable construction is illegal and it's due to state laws, not, not local ordinances. So, um, okay, so uh, uh, now council report. Um, I know Dharma's out of town, so uh, um, Lisa? Um, yeah, so the main things are that council approved a, a brownfield plan for the villages of Ann Arbor. And uh, that plan enables, really, it enables a, a blighted site that's the location of a capped landfill to be repurposed for residential use. And an element of the Brownfield plan is um, $1.2 million that's much needed to implement a very strong recommendation of the Lower Town Traffic Study, which is to have a roundabout at uh, Pontiac and Duvaran. Um, that roundabout will be a ways in coming because the city has to apply for other funds um, to make up the bulk of it. Um, so, and then next council meeting is when 415 West Washington, the, the kind of pre-entitled plan will come up and be voted on. So that's sort of a heads up. And I can't think of, there may be more that was, well, yeah, uh, as, as Mr. Steglitz, Steglitz mentioned, um, council is working on those changes to the way the billing is done for commercial providers. And that will be finally approved at the next upcoming meeting. That's not really particularly controversial. Um, and council approved the extension of RAA's contract for another three years and four months to be collecting uh, multifamily recycling. Okay, thank you, Lisa. 
So um, let's see. So now we come to the chair report. I have a quick question for Lisa. Oh, John. Yes, sorry. Um, Lisa, can you explain um, the obviously in the Brownfield tax credits that were approved for the village, um, as you just said, there was $1.2 million that was included for the roundabout. Um, was there any problem in, for example, increasing the credit from 31 million to, I'm just going to pick a number, 33 million that would have enabled Robertson Brothers to fully electrify the development? And just as a, as a matter of comparison, the city received a grant for $500,000 to electrify 20 homes in Bryant. And so I, I understand that money is not coming from the city's coffers and is not coming out of future tax revenues, but it gives an idea that we're, we're essentially willing to pay $25,000 a unit to electrify them. And the question is, would it have been possible to go to Robertson Brothers and say, we will sweeten the pie um, with our Brownfield tax credit if you would fully electrify the development, including the 320 garden apartments? We definitely did that. Um, and Robertson Brothers seriously considered it. And they were unable to come up with a figure of how much they thought that that would cost them. And they were also concerned about um, market uncertainties both rental market uncertainties and energy market uncertainties and how those would affect the competitiveness of those rental units on the market. And so given the uncertainties and given that they were unable to, um, I mean, it's not that they, they just didn't, they, they were unable to come up with a figure uh, in you know a lay, an outlay figure, and then they were concerned about everything that remains uncertain, even if they could figure that out. And so that possibility just didn't go anywhere. But I know that staff worked very hard to suggest that, and Robertson Brothers worked very hard to think if they could do it. I'm uh, happy to welcome Commissioner Gibrandall to provide any other information that she remembers on that. Yeah, I think you were more involved in the actual negotiations right. with them. So um, okay, I know I know that the whole market uncertainty was definitely a piece in terms of um, the, the delays that all electric buildings seem to be experiencing with hookup. Um, and then I think also just, um, and this is, I guess, my own interpretation that it's pretty hard to make these work if you haven't been designing them from the beginning with that um, orientation. And then it's hard at the planning commission level to kind of catch people later in the process to be able to have them transition that um, as it really is a different order of operations for how you design. Um, and I think people are getting the message and more people are arriving with that now, um, but that I don't know when they first came to us, it was, I don't know, a year and a half ago yeah, or something like that maybe. Um, so they, you know, they, they pivoted on some things, but they didn't on others. Um, so I don't know if I, if there's anything more because I can't quite yeah, remember. I think that's really, really helpful to mention. And I think it's also helpful to mention that it's oh, not yeah, just sure. that, um, yeah. you know, developers are changing their mindset. It's also that planning commission and OSI have really started to 
formalize a process where OSI comes in and provides feedback when staff are beginning to see these projects, when planning staff are beginning to see these projects, because they go, they're, they're sitting with staff for a long time before planning commission sees them. And so at that stage, that kind of collaboration. So there was an extensive memo from OSI and Robertson Brothers, but that process is happening earlier now than it was for the Robertson Brothers proposal. And so, and until we have some kind of um, universal formal requirement that affects all new development, um, that's it's still going to be hit and miss about the extent to which a developer um, really takes that process seri seriously and lets it change what they're doing. And I, I have to give credit to Robertson Brothers because we lack that requirement. It came to them late and they made a lot of changes. I know they didn't go all the way, but they made a lot of changes. Yeah. I mean, I hear out there in the community in the building trades that Ann Arbor has a bad reputation for just spending too much time going through a permitting process. So anything that council and staff can do, you know, to, uh, you know, to consolidate the process and make it more efficient would I think would be greatly uh, effective for a lot of parts, a lot of uh, goals that the city has. So, um, any um, okay, any other comments on that? Okay, so um, uh, now we come down to the chair's report, and I'm just going to say that it's become um, obvious to us, um, uh, at least uh, to uh, the Natural Features Working Group and myself and Rita that there has not. Uh, that with this has to do with the upcoming comprehensive plan. You know, there's been talk for years that the, the master plan update was going to happen. Um, selection of a consultant was talked about a couple of years ago, but it hasn't it hasn't happened yet. There isn't even a consultant assigned to help uh, with this process. And uh, the commission, the environmental commission, was not um, uh, was not provided an opportunity to input. So. It's not really, and and a lot of the natural features uh, committee's work has been um, has been um, shut down at what we perceive as the last minute because of this comprehensive plan update. And so, city staff wants to fold, you know, the natural features uh, ordinance suggestions that we've been working on for some ten years at least um, into the comprehensive master plan, but it's a comprehensive plan, but it's not clear how this engagement is going to happen. So um, I understand there'll probably be a steering committee. So I think it would be good um, if council and staff could try to clarify what um, what uh, they're going to provide for not just the environmental commission, but other uh, inputs from the commissions into the comprehensive planning process. We have not been contacted at all up till now. So I think that's a uh, that's a gap that uh, should be closed. Um, given that you know we're the organizations that are supposedly trying to integrate <laughs> community concerns and um, and staff concerns and council concerns. So as a forum, I think it's I, I personally, as the chair of the environmental commission, I feel like this has been um, 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 something that. Uh, might cause more delays and inefficiencies than whatever, you know, anticipated, uh, uh, you know, whatever, whatever is in, whatever the thought process is here. So I, I'm just looking forward to getting some report um, once there is a consultant and once there's a process developed about how commission inputs are going to 
uh, be integrated into the planning process. That's all. And um, let's see. So um, that's all I have to say. Uh, are there any comments that people have? Maybe I don't see any hands up. So let's move on to the report from staff. Yes, thanks, Steve. Um, I have a few updates. Uh, my first one was uh, the comprehensive plan. I'm just letting you know that uh, once we have updates on that, I will be keeping you updated on that process um, and letting you know uh, of any opportunities uh, for engagement with it. Um, second update uh, is that Ann Arbor is going to be celebrating its bicentennial in 2024, which is very exciting. Um, so we have both uh, an internal uh, and an external committee um, that are planning activities and celebrations across the city. Um, they, we do have a website up at a2bicentennial.org um, that you can keep an eye on for updates on that. Uh, from OSI, uh, our next sustainability series uh, will be on March 29th, uh, and that will be discussing home electrification. Uh, in addition, uh, from June 4th to 10th will be A20 Week, our annual event uh, celebrating the A20 plan. Uh, and we are looking for ideas uh, for activities uh, that can be hosted by OSI or collaborators. If you have any ideas on that front, please let me know. Uh, and then finally, uh, the Ann Arbor 2030 District, uh, in collaboration with OSI, has launched a new A2 area commercial solar program, uh, which is designed to help commercial properties in Ann Arbor and throughout the county access the benefits of clean renewable energy by providing one-on-one -on -one assistance to screen properties for solar potential, uh, helping with the design and release of requests for proposals to qualified installers, uh, helping to review post-installation energy bills, and more. Uh, so that program is now up and running, which we're very excited about. Uh, and those are my updates. All right, great. Thank you, Sean. Um, uh, John, you have John Callowart, you have your hand up. Yeah, Sean, I was wondering if you had any more information about the trainings regarding the Open Meetings Act. Um, I think everybody understood kind of the message that went out, but it left me with a lot of questions in terms of operations and working together. So having those sooner rather than later would be great. Any information on that? Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, so as far as I'm aware, uh, the uh, clerk's office is planning for those trainings to happen uh, in June, um, since the uh, term limits for uh, folks are expiring in May. And so we're going to have some turnover across the commission's boards um, at the end of May. Uh, so those trainings are going to be happening in June or possibly but sometime in the early summer. Okay, thanks, Sean. Any other questions for Sean? No, I hear and see none. So let's move on to the uh, the next item on the agenda is items for the next agenda. This would be for our uh, Mar our March uh, 23rd meeting. So the ones that are up now are discussion of the Greenbelt Millage uh, uses with Ramey Long from Natural Area Preservation Department. Uh, finalization of policy recommendations for 2024, which I mentioned earlier. Um, so we'll have to move quickly on that. Um, and then there's a discussion of the 415 West Washington zoning application, including presentations from Jerry Hancock and Derek Delacorte. And I just want to remind people at this point that our bylaws say that we are, are not supposed to comment on individual developments. You know, we are supposed to work on, on the city's policy, on the city's general policy. So this discussion of the 415 West Washington will focus on the uh, flood, will focus on the... Um, you know, uh, strictly on the water, uh, on the, on the, on the uh, protections from potential floods in the future. Okay. I just want to emphasize that right now. Uh, Brooks, you have your hand up. 
Uh, yeah, for the next meeting, since I'm new to the group, would you like to, me to do a short introduction so people know who I am and my background? That's the next thing I was going to talk about. <laughs> so I'd like to welcome, let's all welcome Brooks Curtis to the commission. He was just appointed a few days ago. And um, yeah, um, um, you have the floor, Brooks, for as long as you like. Okay. Um, so I retired about two years ago from General Motors. I worked there for almost 36 years doing a uh, mostly manufacturing engineering, conveyor system design in the assembly plants, uh, managed a group of engineers for a long time doing that, uh, developed all the corporate standards for conveyors, trained people in other regions, executed large projects in, in multiple cities and states and countries and, and things like that. So that was what I did for work. Um, when I retired, I knew I had more time, so I started looking into doing they're getting more involved in the, the city government type things, which is why I applied for this commission and some of the other ones. Uh, from my environmental background, about 10, 15 years ago, I started doing ecological restoration work days, uh, starting at U of M and then with the city NAP. And I've uh, continued to do that. I'm currently the park steward for NAP at two parks, Bird Hills and Sunset Brooks. And I also support the park stewards on uh, Miller Nature Area and Molan Nature Area. So spend quite a bit of time out there doing that. Um, I volunteer with some of the other organiza organizations like uh, the county's NAP, which is the same name, but slightly different group, um, in a variety of Give365, um, in a variety of other groups, you know, like 10,000 Trees and things like that, just as different volunteer opportunities come up. Um, and also, I, I got appointed to the Elizabeth Dean Fund like a month or so before this one showed up. So I, I'm getting both, and that first meeting is next week also. So um, anybody have any questions for me? Um, not at this point. Um, I'll give you a call. So um, I mean, I think one of the things is um, uh, we'd like you to think about which working group you would like to contribute to. Okay. Yeah, I, I need to know a little bit more about them, but we can talk about that and figure out where the what needs to be done. Yeah, yeah, I can share a document to to with you, and we can have a discussion about any questions you might have about the commission. Okay, okay. all right. So, um, so the next item on the agenda is the next scheduled meeting, which will be March twenty third uh, at seven p.m. for our regular March meeting. Now, Rita, you have your hand up. I hope this will be a quick one. Um, I would, just since we're here, Lisa, I'm hoping that we can um, have an update at some point on the Chapter 40 revisions um, and where it is stands in the city legal process. Actually, we have that update, and you should check in with Dharma Ackman about that. Okay. She and Sean had a she and Mr. Reynolds had a long. Uh, email exchange about that. There are two paths forward. Uh, uh, Councilmember Ackman is interested in shepherding this with you. So uh, I think she she's in Nashville right now, which I think is a vacation or maybe it's work. I don't know. Her dog went, so that means vacation to me. Um, so um, I would follow up with her and, and um, get her thinking on how to move forward. But I think the idea is to kind of shake it loose and not to enable staff review without waiting for legal review is what I think it's doing. And if, I don't know, Mr. Reynolds, if you wanna kick something in there. That was my understanding as well, thank you. 
Okay. Thank you. That sounds like a path forward. So, um, Anya, you have your hand up. Yeah, I apologize. I can't do go through. Uh, oh gosh, I'm on too thin. Um, I had to hop into my car because I had a twelve thirty. I have to drive. To yeah, yeah, sure. Um, no. Could you? I'm I'm actually logged in on my phone too. Do you mind letting me in that way? I think I'm in, but as if you are not a participant. I'm not sure if it matters. Yes, no, I just uh, promote to panelist request to okay. the phone. Well, okay. Anya, the only so, thing um, we have left on the agenda is the public comment period. So it's okay. You can, okay. You can. I will listen that way. I don't want to shorten people. I know. I, I know. Um, okay. Thank you very much. So, um, so any more discussion on this agenda item? Nope. I don't see any. So, um, this move, our next item uh, before adjournment is the public commentary. So uh, this is another opportunity for persons to speak for up to three minutes. Please call 888-788-0099 and enter meeting ID 963-9100-2023. Again, that number is 888-788-0099. Meeting ID 963-9100-2023. This information is also displayed on the meeting agenda and video feed. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand one by one using the last three digits of your phone number. In order to electronically raise your hand to indicate your desire to speak, please press star nine on your phone. You will hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any television or background sound so that we may hear you clearly. Please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments. And be patient, there can be a delay of up to 30 seconds to make a connection. Sean, is there anybody on our line yet? Not as of yet. Well, while we're waiting, I'll just say that um, I'll just say that we had a lot more public commentary uh, before COVID when we were in person. Our in-person meetings generally uh, were attended by uh, uh, up from anywhere from five to 20 people. So um, I, I just want to throw that out there, that this may be another example of, um, you know, of online versus in-person interactions, you know, with the, with the city, with, with city, because uh, we had a lot of young people show up as well as, uh, as well as people from, um, uh, you know, from communities outside, um, you know, the normal, the normal, um, channels. So, um, is there anybody on our line yet, Sean? There is not. Okay. Well, um, in that case, I'm going to declare this meeting adjourned at 1219. Sorry for the, uh, going over time. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.